This week's episode of Query is sponsored by Tomboy X. It's time to stop wearing underwear that doesn't make you feel confident. It doesn't fit or doesn't look cute or doesn't suit your gender. You don't have to do any of that anymore because of Tomboy X. Tomboy X have offers bikinis, briefs, boxer briefs, boy shorts, soft bras, and racerback bras. They've got everyday basic colors and fun seasonal prints, all in sizes extra small to 4X. Head to tomboyx.com slash query and use the code query for 15% off. That's tomboyx, T-O-M-B-O-Y-X.com slash query and enter the code query for 15% off. This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cammie here. Oh, boy, this week, no, not this week, next week, I start a big fall tour. I will be in Chicago, Ann Arbor, Louisville, Kentucky, Bloomington, Illinois, Cleveland, Ohio, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, New Cumberland, Pennsylvania, Philly, Boston, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, Denver. More cities are being added. You can go to CameronEsposito.com slash tour and get those tickets and come out. I love meeting Query listeners. Also, did you see our new t-shirts that say, Hey Queeros, with my haircut on them? Boy, don't you want to wear my haircut on your body. Well, great news, you can. You can head over to Podswag.com, grab them Tease. Today on the podcast, oh, my guest is Amit Paley. And this, this, I, I had a chance to um, run into this person who's the CEO of the Trevor Project uh, at an event and immediately was like, I need to know how we can work together, how I can help um, get Trevor, get the Trevor Project a little bit more airtime and help people know about what you do um, in any way that I can or, you know, whatnot. So we, we made a, an appointment to get on the horn, he's in New York, I'm in Los Angeles, and we are going to tell you about the amazing work that the Trevor Project does. And friends, the Trevor Project is the largest 24-hour toll-free confidential crisis hotline for LGBTQ youth. The number is, Sierra, tell me. 1-800. 1-800. 1-800. 1-866-4-U-Trevor. 1-866-4-U-Trevor. For the number four, you, Trevor. one 866 trevor We're going to talk about the services the Trevor Project provides, but I just wanted to give you that number right up top if you are somebody who needs someone to listen. Enjoy this episode. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on. Darling, I know, I know, I know it's careless. Oh, you, first of all, I just want to say you went to the wrong studio. Ran through the streets of New York. It's a thousand <laughs> degrees. This is the level of dedication that you have to this show, which I will also expand to the queer community at large. Like, thank you so much for this dedication. <laughs> thank you for having us. Really excited to be here and talking to you. Yeah. And I always have folks on the show introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? I will introduce myself. My name is Amit Paley, and I'm the CEO of The Trevor Project, and we are the world's largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention organization for LGBTQ young people. Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for doing that work. I mean, it just, it really matters to me personally, and I hope that, I hope that, uh, I hope folks thank you for the job that you do. Do you get that? Do folks thank you? We do. We get a lot of thanks. I mean, we're, we're, 
I saw you uh, last month. Uh, probably the most meaningful part of that was uh, walking through a crowd of people and have people seeing me wear a Trevor Project t-shirt, not knowing who I am or what I do there, and just looking at that, looking up at me and mouthing the words, thank you. Sometimes they even bow a little bit. Mm. Um, and it's it's a privilege to work at a place where you can come into work every day where people, to save where lives. Where people bow at you. That, is, <laughs> like, that, <I laughs> that mean, doesn't happen every day. No, but, but like that's so... That, that is that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, we we met in person um, at um, Love Loud, uh, which was the music festival that worked to raise money for LGBTQ youth in Salt Lake City, and that was uh, that was fun to be there. How often do you do live events where you represent the Trevor Project? Is that like a big part uh, of your job or a little part of it, your job? It's not a huge part of my job, um, but, you know, we try to be visible. We try to go to events. That was a really incredible festival because for a number of reasons. One, to be in Salt Lake City um, in a place where there is such an acute need for positive representation and support and love for LGBTQ youth was really important to us. And second, you know, we've had a relationship with Dan Reynolds and with people involved in Love Loud for a number of years. And we were part of the festival the year before when it barely got off the ground. And so to partner with people who just through their passion and heart and dedication are working with us to help save lives is really inspiring. And so we always want to be in places like that. Yeah. Yeah. A million bucks raised in a day. There were like 35,000 people there. And I know they're trying to make it bigger next year. So that is I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like as somebody who does my job, I do my job and I'm always like ha having our family, our queer family in my brain when I'm performing. But obviously sometimes you get a chance to have that be a little bit more at the forefront. Um, so that was one of those times for me, too. I was stoked to be there, too, in that like real hot heat, uh, <laughs> wearing shorts, just wearing shorts on stage. In like a football stadium, classic looks. <laughs> you looked great. It was, it was. I mean, it was a really moving. I, I, I felt chills when we were done with it. Just seeing all those young people, some of whom I think have encountered huge rejection and wondering if they had a place in the world, and then to be in a stadium of thirty-five thousand people, filled with love, filled with support, with the lieutenant governor there and musicians and incredible celebrities and influencers. It was, it was inspiring. Yeah, it was. It was. I totally agree. Oh, I want to ask you maybe two different lines of questioning today, if that if that works for you. I want to ask you, obviously, about the work that the Trevor Project does, because I think that's really important for our listeners to know. But I also think I would love to know a little bit about you, because, I, you know, when I think about our listeners, I know I want them to know what resources are available, and I want them to know about the organizations that help our community. But I also want folks to be introduced to the people who work there and like run those organizations. So I want to cover both of those things. How are how do you feel about that? I feel great about that. Amazing. <laughs> Maybe we'll start with you. Where where are you from? I don't actually know this. I'm from Boston originally. Oh yeah? I went to I went to school in Boston. I went to BC. Where are you from in Boston? I grew up very close to BC. <laughs> I grew up in uh, in the suburb of Newton, which oh. I say Newton, but <laughs> Newton. No, that like uh, is that's that's BC. Did we talk about this? In, anyway, the, the, no, yeah. we didn't. We didn't. Yeah, wow. that's where I grew up. I've been there uh, for years, <laughs> literally for years. I was there. Um, that's okay. What was that experience like growing up there? Did Did you feel well? You, how do you identify as an adult right now? Uh, I identify as gay, usually gay mm -hmm. or queer. And um, was that a community growing up where you felt like you saw gay people, queer people around? No, <laughs> no, it was not. I, I grew up um, uh, 
I, I grew up, I went to a Jewish day school growing up. So uh, I didn't see people around me who uh, identified as part of the LGBTQ community. I didn't, my parents didn't really have friends or people like that. It wasn't really talked about. I mean, I remember, you know, the moments where you sort of have consciousness coming in about who you are and realizing I'm a little different than other people. And at first I don't know the words to describe it. And then when you sort of get some of those words, you know, the feelings of shame or loneliness. I remember being worried that I would never be able to find people who would love me or support me uh, if they knew who I really was. Not because I didn't have very loving parents. I had incredibly loving parents who are amazing and quirky and interesting uh, people. Um, but it wasn't, that's just not, they didn't grow up with familiarity or a sense of knowing the words or the sort of lived experience of how to support LGBTQ people like that in that way. What what ages were you when you were figuring out stuff about yourself? Uh, probably sort of late elementary school. And then I think it sort of really clicked for me in middle school. Um, I went to an all boys school for high school, which was, you know, had challenges because, you know, that was right in a period of time where you wanted to make clear to everyone that you were fitting in and that you were not someone who was different. And um, that was really that was really hard. Um, and actually, a lot of my friends were actually gay and they came out as gay later. Um, but I, I remember just feeling a lot of fear and anxiousness and, you know, in some cases, hopelessness about what things would look like, even as on the surface, I had this incredibly lucky and great upbringing. I think that that's one of the things for me when I think about the work that we do of, you know, if someone who has a loving family and parents has such fear and hopelessness when people in different settings, just how challenging it was and is and continues to be for so many LGBTQ youth. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. You say that your friends, so you had like this group of dude friends and many, <laughs> many of them <laughs> Are, have come out were, were was there did you have an awareness of that at the time when you were like in high school did you think well sounds like you knew for yourself did you like think like we are a group of people that all are seeing this in each other but not talking about it or were you not yet aware that that's maybe what was going on I think well first of all I don't think any of us ever called each other dude I think dudes a <laughs> bunch of dudes yo <laughs> Uh, we probably would not have been described as a bunch of dudes and we did not call each other dudes. But I, I think, I, I, I mean, I think I think we probably all saw it in each other, but also at least I think I felt this is something within me, but I also felt um, I can't be open about this. So I'm just going to push it down and I'm going to lead, I'm going to lead the life that I think I'm supposed to lead without exposing this part of me. And then I thought maybe they're doing the same thing. But we, we one, one of my friends did come out in high school. And I mean, I thought he was so incredibly brave and we were all very supportive uh, of him. But, it, you know, to come out, you know, and I, this in the 90s, you know, I, I thought for him to come out in the environment that we were in where there were not really openly gay people in our school, um, I, I was just so inspired and proud of him. But it didn't make me think I'm going to do the same thing. Yeah, it made me think <laughs> that's different. He's more—he's braver than I am. Oh wow! I mean, how was he received by like other peers besides besides you or your group of friends or by teachers or anything like that? Was that did you you got to watch that? Did it look like rejection or did it look like 
I don't know, I, it, some level of acceptance? What did you see? There was there was some level of acceptance, but I think, you know, I, I, I think it was tough for him. I mean, I think he had challenges in doing that, challenges with his family, with some teachers in our school. Um, you know, and it's interesting to look back on that. That's, you know, 20 years ago now that the school is a very different place and yeah, I think of people course. are more open. Um, but then, you know, it, it just, it seemed like that was so incredibly brave and I couldn't fathom doing the same thing. Oh, I mean, I think, you know, I think you and I are probably in the same co- age cohort based on what you're describing. And so, yeah, I lived that life. I mean, I, I didn't go to a, I went to a Catholic school and, um, it was men and women and, um, and also I'm sure like non-binary folks, not that any of that, not that any of that would have been discussed. (laughs) Um, there were no out gay people in my class for sure. Um, I definitely know some folks who have come out since, but like not, not really that many. I mean, just statistically in terms of like the number of people that were there that I know must be LGBT, like I don't even (laughs) know about them still to this day. Probably I'm the one. Actually, if I think about it, I'm probably the one that was gay. Like, that's probably, like, they're all like, it was her. Like, she's the gay one. Um, but, I mean, you know, there are 325 people in my class. So, like, there's, you know, 30 or more people that were, that are in our community that I, I don't know. I don't know that many people that identify that way now um, or that identify as part of our community now. So, it was. It was, like, a super different time. Certainly, high school was not when most people were coming out. I feel like it was, like college post college um if at all at that time yeah and and i i came out in my senior year of college of course now you know when i talk to some young people and you say you came out senior year of college they're like oh my god you must have been so old you know cuz there are places where young people are coming out so much younger in ways that would have been completely unthinkable to me yeah um even at the same time as so many young people still have challenges coming out Absolutely. and don't come out uh in any period of school, yeah. Um, but yeah, it would. It, it, I'm actually was thinking about talking with someone about this. I remember watching in um, my living room. My parents were away when RuPaul was uh, had uh, their VH1 show, um, and I remember turning on, seeing it, being immediately attracted to wanting to watch it, being afraid that my parents would see it, and then I, you know. Paul then and now used the tagline, if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? And I just remember listening to that and thinking, that's so true. You know, in, in like a very deep way, that is so true. And I wasn't able to love myself in that way to um, feel comfortable. And I, my parents would come in and then I'd immediately shut it off. Uh, and of course, now I work in an organization <laughs> where we have, you know, fantasy leagues uh, of, of RuPaul's Drag Race and compete against each other as part of our job. So it's it's uh, it's kind of amazing to see an arc of the thing that I was most ashamed about mm. is now the thing that I'm really proud of and that is what I do professionally. Yeah, literally supports you, which I think, yeah. you know, I think is also something that was never something I was aware of when I was imagining because it was there was this like huge fear about my future myself, my parents, like everybody's like, well, what if, how could you ever get a job? And I mean, it's very funny because now I'm literally like famously gay. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> like, like, it's not like, how could she get a job and then like come out to them? It's literally like every job I ever, I ever get, they already know. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're in the, you're in the industry of, of queerness. You're in the queerness industry, which is very cool. And I also think it's really interesting that you had this like group of friends in high school. I don't, I don't, um, I've never really thought about that before, but oh my God, it's like breaking my heart to just imagine, um, 
you know, all of you like having this thing in common or some of you having this thing in common and not being able to talk about it, but like still maybe getting some comfort from each other. Because my group, I had a really close group of um, female friends, but um, they are all straight people. And I feel like for me, you know, high school and middle school are such huge times for for friendship. Like friends are important in this way that like I think we almost don't talk about we talk about romantic partners and how important that is but we don't talk about like the ups and downs of those friendships like that feel very much like romantic partners and have all of these like big um rom-com movie moments to them where you're like having these falling outs everything's just very heightened in a way that like when you're an adult I feel like it's like that's just not what friendships are like anymore but for me I was always I had an additional thing going on which is that I was you know, like I kind of wanted to date women and was then those were my friends. So I, I'm just imagining like if I was in a group of with that many hormones and that much stress <laughs> and that many that many like things you're trying to figure out and then everybody else was also gay or multiple people. Were, I mean, good God, that sounds like kind of amazing. It sounds kind of amazing. Ugh. Okay, so you came out senior year of college. Um, what kind of what kind of school did you go to? What was the environment like there? Um, well, I, I didn't go too far from home. I went to Harvard undergrad and um, I wanted to be a journalist. So I, I spent, um, I, I started working on a kid's radio show when I was in um, uh, middle school, actually. <laughs> really? So I, yeah. A uh, kid's radio show in Boston. Uh, I was the, uh, I think I, I think my title, I think I was the chief international correspondent. Oh my God. Amazing. Called, it was called Kid Company. What, um, what, what station was it on? It was on WBZ. Oh my remember. God. Of course. <laughs> Um, and it, you know, it was an amazing experience and it made me, you know, I think that experience of made me who I am and made me comfortable asking questions about people and we'd go up to political figures or international <laughs> figures and, you know, little kids, so short, you know, a very high voice and then trying to ask tough questions about things that were important to young people, uh, was incredible. And I thought I wanted to be a journalist my entire career. So when I got, um, to college, I spent all my time working on um, the college newspaper. That's probably where I spent <laughs> very little time in class, unfortunately, and uh, most of my time in the newsroom. That's an interesting background to have and then do the work that you do because you had – it sounds like you might have been in the in the pretty unusual – like the unusual position of being taken seriously as a kid or at least like vaguely taken seriously. Like you're, you were asking questions and expecting real answers, right? Uh, I was, I was. And when I didn't actually, there's some video clips of this. When I, when I would ask a tough question and I wouldn't get an answer back, I was completely indignant that, you know, why young people are the future. You're hearing all these politicians saying young people are the future. Here's a young person asking a question about young people. And when we would get blown off, it just sort of smacked of hypocrisy to, to me. So it would seem to me, you know, particularly important that you would have like that feeling and that experience and that knowledge of frustration and then, you know, do work with folks that, like, for any of your work to make any sense, it has to start with respect. And so it feels like there's a lot of, you know, ageism towards, like, kids, and especially in on topics of LGBTQ identity. We are so often distrusted as we name what we are. You know, and distrusted like, well, are you sure that you're that or are you sure that that could be a positive thing for you or, you know, any – I don't have to tell you the questions that we get. And so would imagine that – I bet it helps you a lot to 
yeah, to be like, <laughs> I knew who I was, but also like I was somebody who uh, was out in the world testing people around me, asking for respect as a young person. That's pretty cool. Have you thought about that before? Have you thought about like that prepping you for your job now? Uh, yeah, a, a, a little bit. I mean, that's it's interesting the way that you framed it that way from my uh, days being sort of a kid's work because I, I actually then worked as a journalist. I worked after college. I worked at the Washington Post for seven years. So I do think there are a lot of parallels between asking questions of people, but the the practice of asking questions and then listening to answers. You know, we have a lot of people who talk and don't listen when people respond to them and the core of what we do at the Trevor Project on our crisis services is create that moment where we are really listening to what people are saying. Um, and that's very rare in a lot of parts of our society right now. And I think part of that skill and that comfort um, came from being a reporter and being genuinely curious and interested in what people were thinking and doing and who they were. What beat did you work at The Post? What, what kind of stuff were you covering? International stuff still? I, I worked a lot. Well, I started, so I it was my first job right at I, I graduated from college on a Thursday. I moved to D.C. on a Friday, which happened to be D.C. Gay Pride. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd actually just come out to my family two months before. And, Look at you. Um, my dad drove me down. And when we arrived in D.C. <laughs> in DuPont Circle and there were... I remember this this sort of RAV4 Jeep. I think it was hot pink, and there were four guys in tank tops, maybe some without shirts. And my, I think my dad thought, did you design this to come down on Gay Pride Weekend? And I was thinking, no, I did not somehow you know, convince the editors of the Washington Post to have my internship start the weekend of Gay Pride. It just sort of worked out this way. Um, I'm like imagining but, the scene in Zoolander <laughs> when they're like playing with the gasoline uh, at the gas station. And do you remember what I'm talking about? It doesn't matter. But. Yeah, a l <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So you so you went down there. It was so I went Pride down there weekend. and then I was an in, I was a Metro intern. I covered. Did you go you to know, Pride? Did you go to Pride? I did go to Pride. So I just I had just come out. So um, that was my that was my first Pride. Oh, my God. Um, do you remember yeah, what I, it was I like? Um, I remember being feeling really intense. I, rem I, I mean, I remember when I came out, I remembered just this feeling of th this heaviness in my chest, like a physical heaviness in my chest that I had felt for a really long time, suddenly feeling just released, like I had a lightness about me. Um, and I just felt that sort of got ramped up to the, to the nth degree. And I felt free and happy and excited. And I was with some friends and we went out dancing. And I had never, maybe I'd been to a gay club once or just right after I came out, but it was, it was my first time, you know, DuPont Circle in 2004, which is when I graduated from college, is my first time being in a place where there were just tons of people of the same gender holding hands and being open and proud. I just had never seen that before up close. And it was incredibly moving to me. Um, yeah. yeah. Also, I'm if you graduated in 2004, we graduated the same year. And also we graduated and I was in Massachusetts also. And that is when Massachusetts became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage, like right yeah. around our graduation. And, so I mean, that that's was not also happening. <laughs> It was, so 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 what actually was happening when I was in college? Um, so I worked for for my college newspaper, and the probably the biggest story that I did, um, I you know I'm a nerdy wonky person who likes to hang out in archives, and I was in the Harvard archives, and I discovered this 
there was just an entry in this database that said secret court 1920. And I was like, well, that's very interesting. What is, what, what's the secret court 1920? And I looked into it more and it, took a huge battle with the administration to get the records, but it turned out that in 1920, um, there was a group of gay students at Harvard that the administration found out about, expelled almost all of them from Harvard. Um, several of them actually killed themselves um, as a result uh, after, after what happened. And then the university was so ashamed of what happened, they literally crossed them out of the register of the university took all these files, locked them in a cabinet, and it was all a secret for 80 years until I uncovered this thing. So there was, I worked on this for a year. It was this huge story that I worked on. Um, and when it came, I was not out when I worked on it. It's completely in the closet when I worked on it. Um, and I remember in the midst of that time, even before same-sex marriage was legalized in Massachusetts, the Lawrence v. Texas decision by the Supreme Court was, um, was that 2002? That was 2003. So I, I just remember being in my dorm room, reading that decision by Justice Kennedy and crying. I just remember crying because the language that he used that you can actually be, that, that gay people, that LGBTQ people deserve dignity. I don't know what it was about just the, the institution, the justice saying that it had this really profound impact on me. And then when Massachusetts and the Supreme Judicial Court legalized Massachusetts, I think it changed something in me that I thought all these years since I was in middle school, I thought I will never be successful. I will never be able to be a proud person. No one will love me. I won't be able to get a job or do what I want to do. That sort of melted away a little bit. And I thought I can be a successful person and be open about who I am. And that's what prompted me to come out. You know, when I was at BC, and Boston College is a Catholic college, and at the time, sexual orientation was not included in the non-discrimination policy. So you could be kicked out of school for being gay um, while I was in school there. And also, and I have to tell you this because you were in Boston at the same time, um, the biggest story in the city um, during our undergrad um, was about the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. And so, like, that would be the front page of the Boston Globe while I was at a school that was saying, like, that essentially I was, you know, giving me messaging that, like, I was a disgusting pervert or that I was, you know, something to be ashamed or that I was, um, that I should hide myself. And um, to me, living through that moment, you know, of, of finding out, like, the truth about what my church was. I mean, literally, that was the Archdiocese of Boston, which is technically, like, the boss of, of the school that I went to. And also the school that I went to um, bought land from the Archdiocese while, like, in 2004, um, that that money went directly went to bailing out the, 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 um, the lawsuits from that, like, from all of those people that came forward and talked about their experience. There's, there's literally, like, land where, where currently um, there are buildings built that that happened while I was an undergrad. $100 million. And in, by the way, this is, like, not a secret. This is, like, an open thing that happened. So I feel a little bit of what you're talking about with the that Harvard 1920 um, revelation. For me, it felt like it was... And it was it was unfolding around me in real time. Um, this sort of banishment of who I was, and then what I saw 
this same organization was like willing to put up with and, and hide and support. And so, you know, when we talk about marriage equality now, I feel like so often we talk about how maybe it wasn't the right battle because, you know, is, is marriage like our most pressing issue when we also have to just like when so many people are housing unstable or so many people need um, access to life-saving medical care. And I absolutely think there isn't one issue. Of course, like we're, we're a community that is made up of individuals and so we have a bunch of individual needs and I, I'm here to stand, you know, with my family and to fight for everybody. And at the same time, living through that moment of marriage equality happening and in the state where it, where it happened for the first time, I completely relate to what you're talking about that, I mean, <laughs> does it matter what the government thinks of you? I suppose we can we can say that it doesn't, um, but I, f- I, felt to- I felt completely different. Like, like from the day before the decision to the day after the decision, I felt completely different. I felt completely, um, yeah, I felt like a different person with a different value and different protections. And, you know, like nothing was fixed. But the thing that you're talking about of like just having any, po- any possible future, that I felt that too. I felt like it was a real night and day moment yeah i mean i think i think we hear that from so many people i mean regardless what you think about policy and what the government should do when the when people in positions of power say things it it has an impact it has an and i mean it really it, it sounds so silly but words really do matter and um you know we see that at, at the trevor project we see that so clearly I, I don't think i fully appreciated that until I was in this job and saw, because we see in our numbers, we see when something will happen, when the president of the United States says trans people don't deserve to be in the military, you might be a trans person who doesn't ever want to be in the military. But when you hear a person say that, it impacts how you think about yourself. And so when the president tweeted that, we saw a huge spike in LG, in, in trans and gender nonconforming people reaching out to the Trevor Project. The day after the presidential election in 2016, we saw our call volume more than double in a 24-hour period of time. Because, I mean, the policies clearly matter. They have real impact. But I, I just, I wish more people would give consideration to the fact that the messages and the rhetoric and the words that they send have such a huge impact. And your words can be filled with disrespect and judgment and hate, or your words can be filled with love and hope and respect. And that's, that's sort of what we try to do all the time. I'm so glad that you brought all of that up because, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing about it is that, um, I mean, and you would have like the research to back this up or whatever, but but just anecdotally, I will say, I mean, words, words are violence because words beget violence, right? Like there's a reason that um, gay slurs can hurt so much and it's because we know that they also exist in the context of gay bashing. You know, like it's like, it's not it maybe wouldn't hurt so much to be called a word from a car that's driving past if it doesn't also make you think of every person that's been called that word as everything happened to them, you know, as they were kicked out of their home or as they were kicked out of their family or as they were kicked out of their faith or as they were physically attacked and brutalized. You know, so I just think it, you're exactly right that um, obvi- like the, the research proves it out and your numbers prove it out, but we know anecdotally that like when 
when words <laughs> when words are slung at us because we're part of a marginalized community, like it calls up all the violence and and all of the things that have been done to us. So yes, it doesn't necessarily matter if you want to enter the military, you know, and also like what an additional fuck you to all the trans folks who have served already um, and all the queer folks that have served already. But um, and 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 are serving and are serving um, now proudly yeah. and putting their lives on the line yeah. to protect us. I know I think about that every time it's, uh, you know, Veterans Day or anything like that. Um, I always think about the folks who never had a chance to come out and who already like they've already they've already they've already done it. They already gave their this this. So it's like the debate is um, it's moot, right? Because it's like, well, you, good luck uh, parsing that out of our history because it already exists. Hey friends, Cammie here. You know, something that I really care about is aluminum-free deodorant. This is actually totally true. I made the switch a bunch of years ago. It's hard to find, however, aluminum-free deodorant that really works. So that's why I'm telling you about Kapari. Kapari coconut deodorant is aluminum-free deodorant that doesn't suck. It won't clog your sweat glands. There's no sticky residue left behind. You're going to just smell like a distant whiff of coconut milk, which by the way, smells awesome. They use plant-based actives like sage oil and coconut oil. There's no silicone, no sulfates, parabens, GMOs, or baking soda. Also, Kapari offers a money-back guarantee, so just like give it a shot. I care about what goes in your body, so I am going to tell you to jump on this train, try Kapari Beauty. You can head to koparibeauty.com slash query for the safe switch away from aluminum deodorant towards aluminum free, and you'll also get $5 off. That's K-O-P-A-R-I beauty.com slash query. Switch today. This week's episode of Query is sponsored by Audible. Audible is a service I, Cameron Esposito, actually love and use. I've used it for years. Audible offers the largest selection of audiobooks anywhere on the planet. I love to listen to audiobooks because I love to hike. I love to walk around the cities that I travel in. And sometimes I just feel like I want company or I want to read, but I can't like read because I'm walking or I'm on a plane and it's like landing and I'm stressed out about the <laughs> turbulence. So I straight up listen to audiobooks all the time. One recently that I listened to that I would absolutely recommend, Call Me By Your Name, read by Army Hammer. It's beautiful. He does an amazing job. So friends, if you want to try Audible, here's the, here's the pitch. You can try it for 30 days free. You get your first audiobook free. You'll get a credit every month to use on a new audiobook and unused credits roll over. You don't like it, you can exchange the book that you have. The books are yours to keep and they can be switched between devices picking up where you lift off. Honestly, straight up, I use this all the time. Head to audible.com slash query to try the service today. You can text query to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. Well, I want to transition to talking a little bit about the work that you do because you did such a great job of already talking about that. Um, so how did you, first of all, how did you get this position and how long have you been there? So um, so I'm relatively new to being on staff as CEO. I started 14 months ago, um, so pretty new to that role, but not to the organization. So I 
started seven years ago volunteering, answering calls on our 24-7 phone lifeline. And I was starting to do that when I was in a professional transition. So I, I mentioned that I was a reporter. Um, I worked, covered Metro. I was a foreign correspondent covering the war in Iraq for a few years. Then for a long, complicated series of reasons, I totally switched up what I was doing and went to business school and began working as a management consultant um, at uh, McKinsey, the, the global consulting firm, doing primarily nonprofit and healthcare uh, management work. Oh, what does and that I mean? Started... Can I ask you a follow-up question? <laughs> what is that job? No one ever knows what a consultant does. No, I mean, um, I know what a consultant does. Like, <laughs> if you are like, I am an account. I work for like an accounting firm, and I can, I'm a consultant. But what does that specific job mean? What job? What job is that? Well, so uh, this is maybe not that helpful, but in general, I would say sort of, you know. Uh, at least at McKinsey, we thought of management consultants as people who are coming in to help an organization, which could be a company, could be a nonprofit, could be a government, um, help solve its top problems and improve its performance, which I realize is pretty vague, but it's because it, it can encompass so many different things. Um, so I, you know, That actually makes not- a lot of sense to me. So you went to business school and then and then you did this job and in specifically in the nonprofit profit sector that's the that's well and or, I, or like I, that's I, a part of what you where you worked yeah i i worked i i first went there and thought i was going to work on media so i i i went to business school actually on a fellowship for journalists um i went on a fellowship for mid-career financial journalists even though i was neither mid-career nor a financial journalist but i still went and it was great and i thought i was going to go back to the washington post um and I decided to try something different, even though most of my friends thought it was a huge mistake and a big risk. And they thought I was going to hate it and quit after six months. And I ended up really liking it. Um, I ended up not doing media, which is what I thought. I thought I was going to go and help find a business model to save journalism. I did not find that business model. And I, um, man, but it I was got, you. You're the one. Who, <laughs> you're the one who didn't do it. And so now we're like totally screwed. Thanks a lot, buddy. No. Well, the Washington Post is doing great no, they these are, days, they are, and yeah. my, my former I meant media are in general. Founded. <laughs> you couldn't say media in general. What the hell? Uh, um, maybe maybe next next <laughs> I can try. Um, but I I I ended up doing healthcare and nonprofit work. Um, you know, I always I, I part of the reason I became a journalist was it seemed mission driven to me. The idea that you would tell stories about people that whose stories otherwise wouldn't be heard. I did a lot of investigative journalism. I liked uncovering things where people were doing things that were wrong and you know, bringing light to things that were in the dark. So it felt very mission-driven. And then doing work with healthcare companies um, and nonprofit companies, You know, there was a big international humanitarian organization. We helped them create a new strategy for the organization that serves you know, people in need in countries around the world. Um, healthcare companies working on ways to make healthcare more affordable. And then I did do a lot of pro bono work. So I I took that job. I started there one month after I began volunteering at the Trevor Project. And I quickly realized, I mean, I didn't know anything about business when I started um, as a management consultant, but after a little bit, I had all these skills. And I thought the Trevor Project really could use this help. Um, it was at a time when there was a big spike in demand for the Trevor Project then. It was after the death of um, several well-publicized suicides of of LGBTQ youth. And so I began begging my colleagues, can you help with the call center of the Trevor Project? Can you help with some strategy work? Can you help with some data analysis? And I just got more and more involved in the organization, not just answering calls on the lifeline, which quickly became the single most rewarding thing I had done in my life at that time and is still the most rewarding thing I've ever done. 
Um, and I just got more and more involved. And I thought the Trevor Project will be my passion work on the side. I have this day job that I really like. And then the presidential election happened. And when our call volume more than doubled in a 24-hour period of time, I thought I really want to do something mission-driven, full-time. Um, and um, my predecessor had had um, decided to leave a few months before, and they were looking for someone with my skill set. So I threw my hat in the ring, and here I am. You know, I love I love that you have business experience, and you know, went to business school, and because I think when when we talk about um, the thing about the nonprofit sector is that so often, um, you know, the minds that want to that want to succeed at business um, are going to enter the for-profit arena because, like, we have created in this in our culture a correlation between um, business and profit. And so, for you to work somewhere um, where you have like a skill set that understands managing a company, you know, but then putting that with good work or, you know, I mean, um, work that's a little larger than whatever it is, X corporation does, that's, that's really important. We don't, I mean, I don't know that we talk enough about that when we talk about the specific challenges that exist for organizations that help our community that are in like the nonprofit area. It's, it's so often folks who, they might be super talented, um, but like just maybe didn't have the experience working, managing you know, like large amounts of money in the way that would best benefit an organization. Because it's like there's two worlds, right? Not everybody that manages a nonprofit organization like has a business background. Um, but it is always nice when someone does because it allows for the nonprofit to be managed a different way. Um, I'm yeah, sure. I totally, totally. I mean, I, I think when you talk about that sort of dichotomy, there are, I think there's some people who think people in the for-profit sector are, you know, they're all analytical and they're heartless and they, you know, they have certain training, but no, but no heart, you know, skills, but no heart. And I think some people look at the nonprofit sector and they think people with big heart, but no skills. And in fact, I have, I think the best performing organizations are ones where you have people with big hearts and skills. And I've seen nonprofits, <laughs> I've seen nonprofits, I've seen nonprofits that are run way better than some for-profit companies. And, you know, I've seen some for-profit companies that have people with bigger hearts than some people in some the nonprofit sector. So I totally. think that's where we <laughs> that's where you have the most impact when we bring that together. And I also think, you know, what what's sometimes frustrating for me is, you know, the the company I used to work for, they literally would say, we want the world's top talent. And um and I, you know, think I have a huge amount of respect for the company I worked for, and it's it's does a lot of amazing work. The problem that we are solving at the Trevor Project, the problem we're trying to address of LGBTQ youth suicide, is not only no less important than any problem that anyone else is solving. I would argue it's probably more than just more important than just about every other problem saving lives. Um, we need the world's top talent. We need the world's top talent of this organization to make sure we are more effective, that we are more innovative, that we are growing, and that we're serving all the young people who desperately need our help. And so I, I think it's sometimes hard to compete with the salaries that other people can pay. But I think they're also, I'm finding there are increasingly people who say, um, yeah, I, I, I have to make a, a livable wage, but 
doing something that's rewarding where we literally walk in the door and our job is to save lives, that's actually, that's more important than, you know, getting your second or third or fourth. I mean, I don't own any homes, but, you know, for people who are <laughs> who want to buy their 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 Than me home. getting my fourth home? I own three homes. <laughs> no. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I, th- I also think the other thing, well, if we can break down these barriers a little bit between, and especially, like, as queer people, here's the thing, like, we have these family connections that some folks who you know, like that straight folks don't necessarily have. So um, you can also reach out to folks who are in the for-profit world or yes. <laughs> who are in corporate America and uh, say, you know, like entrust us with your money. And I think that's something that also matters in terms of blurring these lines and like what we as members of the queer community can do. Like we need to be aware of the services that are around us and and um, tell each other what those services are so that we can use them but then we also need to fund them depending on like what where we are and on each individual issue or each moment in our life like you know this is something where we could create a circle and and we we really should kind of be able to take care of each other if we if we try you know there are there are enough of us that work um and are and are hugely successful so like i I think that's another thing that is something our community benefits from is that we have this family connection that isn't split on any particular race, age, socioeconomic background, or field that we work in. Um, and I know the Trevor Project receives a ton of donations. And I mean, maybe you could speak to that, actually. Like, how, how do you get your funding? We, we get our funding from the generosity of people who are inspired by our mission and want to help us save more lives. Um, and you know some of that comes from some um, corporate sponsors, but most of it really comes from individuals who are moved by our mission. And we've historically had most of our funding from really small donors, people giving, you know, if you're if you're 14 years old and you give twenty dollars, you know, that's not a huge amount of money to someone else, but to that 14 year old, it's an enormous amount of money. And I, I I'm sort of constantly inspired and pretty moved by people who are giving such a huge portion of what they have, even though the the dollar amount might not seem large to people who are making tons of money. Uh, so that that that's how we do it. We don't we don't charge we don't charge for our services. They're toll free. We serve people, you know, a huge portion of the young people we serve are in communities of color or trans non-binary who don't have the resources um, to pay for therapy. We know the numbers overall in the US that people do not get access to mental health care. And when they need help, they reach out to us. Um, I will add to your point, though, about um, you know the community giving back. There's also there's a body of research that um, LGBTQ people are actually overall have been less generous, especially at some of the major donor levels, than straight and cisgender people. Come which... on, us! <laughs> Come on, us! <laughs> and I I actually really don't know I really don't know why that is because I I. Part of me would have thought that people who f- people who have felt like outsiders um, and know what that's like would feel even more inclined to want to give and to support. But there are just a bunch of examples. You know, there's a the research overall, and then you can think of examples of very famous, very wealthy LGBTQ people who are not giving in the same way as others, and um, that's why it's so important that everyone give you know i mean i sort of grew up in a culture of you give a tenth of your income to charity um you know a lot of faith-based 
communities have that, um, especially at a time when the government isn't supporting core services. We need individuals to be generous and to support things that really matter. Well, and I and I would say, you know, some of that might just be that here we are, a marginalized community. We, you make it through and you're like, well, I made it through and that was really difficult. And so this money is for me. And I mean, this is a moment right now where, and I would say specifically to like any listeners that are, um, you know, white or cisgendered or able-bodied people with some privilege, that this is, you know, we need to take care of our family. And that it's, it is really important to realize that like however hard it was for you um there are there are people who have more strikes against them in our culture and uh that those are our family members so like that's why i you know give and and try to connect and in the way i think about our family is that it was really difficult for me to get where i am and so i'm not going to close the door to anybody else who i know has it has had to face same obstacles or, or even greater obstacles. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the actual services that you provide. So what is – talk to me about what the Trevor Project actually does. Like like this – you've been talking about the call-in and the, that you um, worked at the call-in center. But can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Yeah, of course. So, so we are the world's largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention organization for LGBTQ youth. And the core of what we do is direct service for LGBTQ youth who are – in crisis, feeling hopeless, feeling like they just need someone to talk to. So a lot of people know us best for our 24-7 phone lifeline. That is actually how the Trevor Project got started 20 years ago. It's our 20th anniversary this year. What is um, the name from? So um, the name, uh, it's based off of a, of a movie um, called Trevor, which was a fictional um, story about uh, a young boy named Trevor who was realizing that he was gay and then dealing with feelings of depression and suicide. And the movie won uh, an Academy Award for Best Short Film. Um, and after it won the Oscar, HBO decided to air it um, in 1998 at a time when you know LGBTQ themes were still pretty controversial and themes of suicide, as they still are today, were pretty controversial. Um, Ellen had just come out, so she introduced it actually when it aired on HBO. And um, the director and producers of the film realized all these all these kids are going to be watching this movie. If they're kids like Trevor, we need to make sure they can get help. And so they wanted to put a place at the end where they could get help. And they realized there was no national organization providing support and crisis services for LGBTQ youth. So the name of the movie was Trevor. They created a nonprofit called The Trevor Project. They started the country's first 24-7 phone lifeline for LGBTQ youth in crisis. They launched it about 10 minutes before it went on the air on HBO that night. And then the phone started ringing off the hook that night. And it hasn't stopped since. What happens when you call in? What is the process like for somebody who's seeking services? So like you call the toll-free number. Who picks up the phone? So usually the person who picks up the phone is a volunteer. It's someone who has gone through uh, an extensive amount of training to um, understand our call model and how to support um, all sorts of people who might be having different types of needs. And really at the core of what we do is making sure that whatever the reason someone is calling, we can first listen to them and make sure that we hear them. I mean, it sounds so basic, but there's so many people who are not seen, they're not heard. And to be able to pick up the phone or, and I'll tell you about our other services, but the phone or text or chat, and to share with someone, here's what I'm going through, and to have someone just listen and say, 
sounds like that's really challenging. It sounds like you're going through a tough time. Hearing someone just reflect that back to you is very powerful. And uh, we probably know that from points in our lives. I know that from personal experience, there's a whole bunch of research that shows that. But that's at, at a core of what we do. Um, we always assess someone's risk to make sure we know we want to keep them safe. Um, we work to um, validate them. So in some cases, people who are calling us, it's the first time that they've ever disclosed to anyone that they're an LGBTQ person. I mean, I can't tell you the number of calls I've had from people who'll say, you know, if I tell you, is this totally confidential? And we say, you can share anything with me. It's a confidential lifeline. And they say, well, I've never told anyone this, but I'm a lesbian and I'm really afraid what will happen. I, I don't think I can come out. I can't tell anyone. And we'll say to them, I want you to know you've just come out to me and there may be people in the world who don't accept you for who you are, um, but I want you to know there are many, many people in the world who will not only accept you for being who you are, but will celebrate you for being proud and open about who you are. And I'm one of those people and I'm really proud of you. And sometimes when you say that, you just, the water works. Oh my God, I'm like going to burst into, yeah. like literally I'm, I actually am kind of crying. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. So um, you assess the situation. Do you do like a referral process? If this is somebody that you're you're worried about their um, immediate safety, um, what what happens then? Well, we so we 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 always try to get people resources, um, and there can be all sorts of different types of resources. Um, they might be local in their community. They might be a place to reach out if they're part of a particular community. Sometimes people don't know about resources that are really important and we have a whole database and we can get people um, those sort of referrals. Um, and then sometimes we have people who are not in a safe place in a safe place and um, we will try to get them somewhere where they can get safe because our, our core focus is making sure that we can save lives. And we do sometimes have people call it all different um, types of crisis. You know, we don't define what a crisis is. Something that is a crisis to someone might not seem like a crisis to you, but it very much may be a crisis to them. Um, and so we want to make sure we meet people where they are and that we support them. And um, if they, we, we try to get them away from weapons, away from places they can hurt themselves. And we also offer callbacks to people who need it um, and make sure that they can we can follow up to ensure their safety. And is there like a limit on the services that you can get from Trevor Project? Like, I mean, is is it like um, I can only call one time? I can only call eight times? Like, or are you or are you always there? I'm imagining there might be listeners who would want to call you. Um, so um, that if there are listener, if there are people listening who want to call us, then they should call us. That's why we exist. We're here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, the reason we exist is so that. LGBTQ youth know that they are never alone. There are so many messages, we talked about it, where people feel like, I don't know what society thinks of me or people in positions of power. The Trevor Project is somewhere where you can reach out to literally any hour, any minute of the day and get someone who will be there to support you, who will respect you, um, who will send love and, and support. Um, and we, we're talking about phone now. Um, we also do um, crisis services via text and chat. There are a lot of people who um, may not want to pick up the phone um, for various reasons. And you can text into us. You can chat with us. We're working on integrating with other social media. 
Uh, we also run a safe space social networking site called Trevor Space. It's the world's largest safe space social networking site for LGBTQ youth. So that's one of the referrals that we give. Uh, there might be a moment of crisis where you need someone to talk to, but you might also say, sometimes we talk to young people. I remember I remember talking to a caller who was, I think, in North Dakota, and um, I asked for their zip code because we often look for um, resources by zip code. I think they were 12 or 13 years old. And when I looked up the nearest physical place they could get help, it was in a different state and it was five hours away. Um, and they're 12. And I, I checked with them, is there public transportation? Said, no, there's no public transportation. And my parents don't know that I'm gay. There's no way I can get there. But told them about Trevor Space, and that's a place where they can interact with young people like them from across the country, from around the world. Uh, and there's a lot of research to show if you can get peer-to-peer -peer support from people like you, it helps enforce that you are not alone, even if you might be in a particular physical place where there you don't see people like you and you don't hear messages from people like you. And I, I mean, so I guess then, you know, just like helping folks to understand what they could expect. Are you like logged? Like, is your name going to show up somewhere? Like, what what is the process like? Or is it just like, I'm finding out your zip codes so that I can help you figure out if there's someplace near you. But when we hang up the phone, like you're you will still be safe with me in this in this confidential you, way. People people will always be safe with us. We're not we we don't publicize that information. We're looking we type it in to find resources near someone because um I I'll tell you I'm I'm often surprised by um sometimes we get calls from people and they say there's nowhere I can go. There's no one like me where I am and we'll look at their zip code and we'll realize there are actually a lot of resources near you. Yeah. you know, some someone will say, um, you know, I'm trans and I, you know, I, I've I've never met another trans person before. And then we'll type in something and it turns out that there is a support group for trans people that meets 10 minutes away from them and they had no idea. Or someone will be, you know, they're a queer Muslim person and they say, you know, Islam doesn't accept queer people and I can't be open and there's a meeting group for queer Muslims near them. So um, that's how we do it. But people are safe. It's a it's a it's a free and confidential service for people um, to talk about who they are. And um, sometimes people talk to us and they're not ready to share it with anyone else. That's okay. We we don't we do not pressure people to come out. Sometimes they're actually sometimes people decide I'm not in a place where it's safe for me to come out. And we don't make any we're you know we're judgment free. Um, uh, service because people are in different situations and our main concern is just safety, safety and support for LGBTQ young people. Can you tell me the number that you would call? The number you can call is 1-866-4-U-TREVOR. So the number four, the letter U and then Trevor. And if you dial that number, you'll get, get to our 24-7 phone lifeline. Again, literally any hour of the day. Uh, you can also reach out um, via text and chat. And um, if you go to our website, www.thetrevorproject.org, we're not yet 24-7 on our digital crisis services. That's our big uh, initiative right now. But if you go to the website, you can get information on how to um, reach out to us digitally and what hours we're available. And just if you feel, I'm sure this is also information that you have, um, you're the operators, like the, folk, the folks that are picking up the phone, Demographically, who are who are those people? Who does that job? Who wants to do that job? 
uh, they are the most amazing, um, <laughs> big-hearted people you will ever meet. I yeah. mean, ju- just, ima- just imagine the type of person that um, will go through hours and hours of training um, and will anonymously, without recognition, um, be there for LGBTQ youth who have nowhere else to turn. They're, they're literally filling a void of people in their community or family who are not there for them. And we have some volunteers who've been volunteering for more than a decade. Um, and they're incredible people. And they're all types of people, all walks of life. Um, some of them have backgrounds in mental health, but many, most do not. Um, you don't have to have specific training to be a counselor. We provide you with all all the training that you need. You need to be a person who um, has empathy. You need to have a, be a person who is able to have critical thinking and listening skills. Um, and you need to obviously support and affirm LGBTQ young people. Um, and if you can do those things, it doesn't matter your sexual orientation. Sometimes people ask us, do you take straight people? Yes, we take straight people. We do, we do not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, it, it's it's just, it's um, I, I feel it's like one of the most amazing groups of people you will ever encounter in your and life. Do you have to be somewhere uh, geographically? Like how, how does it work? If, if somebody wanted to volunteer with, with the organization, where where are you picking up the phone from? Yeah, so um, if you um, are interested in volunteering on our phone lifeline, you have to be in New York City or in Los Angeles. Um, but for our digital crisis services on text and chat, which is our fastest growing services, um, you can literally be anywhere in the country. As long as you have a working internet connection, you can you can sit in your pajamas on your couch and help save lives. I mean, that sounds uh, like a good deal. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go through the, you have to go through training first. You have to first, go through the training um, process. You have to be like uh, an okay person. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, I mean that, and that's that's really where we're working on on recruiting more people because there's such a need for our digital crisis services and because they can be anywhere in the country. So would that just be your website? Is that where folks would find out more information? Yeah, if you go to our website, www.thetrevorproject.org, there's a volunteer section. Um, you can learn more about what are the requirements and the timeline, and you can um, reach out there and sign up. Um, and we're working on revamping our processes so we can actually bring on more volunteers and um, at an even faster rate. Well, first of all, I just have to say you are very charming and um, I'm so glad that you are doing this work. Thank you so much for talking to me. We're like almost at the end of our of our. Um, We're at the end. I can't believe it. Yeah, uh, I know. I'm really easy to talk to. That's the thing. about me. <laughs> is there anything that I didn't ask about with regard to the organization you feel like is really important to say? Because I feel like we nailed it. I feel like you got you got so much in. We are packed full of information. Is there anything that Cammy missed? Um, so I, I think we talked about people who are listening. Um, we need volunteers. If you want to volunteer, please volunteer. Um, we need donors and support. Money. Are, uh, Give us that money. Give us that um, money, especially if you're in the community. Why are you keeping your money? <laughs> Keep going. Uh, we, we, we need people to spread the word that if any LGBTQ young people that are listening or if you know LGBTQ young people, please let them know that we are here for them 24-7 and that they are never, never alone if they need help. Um, and then the last thing is uh, the statistic, which is that just one supportive person in an LGBTQ young person's life can reduce their risk of suicide by 30%. And so 
at the Trevor Project, we are that one person for many people, but also people listening should know they can be that one person. If you think you know someone who might be struggling, who needs someone to talk to, if you see an LGBTQ person and they're maybe not getting the support they need, you reaching out to them and being there for them really can make a difference and can literally help save lives. So I just want want to sh- make sure people are aware of that number because, um, you know, one person really can make a difference. You know, we are in people's ears right now. So I'm just going to say openly that, you know, I really I really care about and accept all the members of our community. How about you? I definitely um, accept and love all the members of our community <laughs> and um, I, I mean, we're, we're sort of laughing, but I no, I mean, I I'm laughing because really, like think it out really of joy. matters. Yeah, like I'm <laughs> like it, like not. I'm not undercutting what I'm saying. I, I really do mean it. Yeah, I mean that's the reason I started this podcast is because it is the barrier to entry for podcasting. It's you know I have a network here. It's so cheap. I literally don't have to. I don't have to invest money here. And then we have advertisers that helps us to support the show so that I can have an awesome producer and so that we can have engineers here. And then, you know, for me, it's just like we live in this moment where we can really capture our history. We can talk to each other in this in-group conversation about what our lives are really like. And so why why would we not do that? I mean, truly, like kind of nothing matters to me more than um, documenting who we already are and – communicating the sphere of safety that like I hope continues to grow for all of us. So, yeah. I am so grateful to you for for being my guest. And before I send you back into the life-saving work that you do, would you like to shout out a queero, which is just a person, a place or an organization that helped you feel comfy in the adult that you are today? It's so hard to choose just one. Um I mean, part of part of me wants to say, um, I think part of me wants to say all the all the Trevor Project counselors, all the volunteers who are doing this work without recognition, without pay, because they care, because they know that it's needed, and because they're just amazing, big-hearted people. I mean, that's I feel constantly inspired by the people that I'm around, and so I, I guess I want to shout out the Trevor Project family, T- Team Trevor, as yeah. we as we call it, who's doing that work every day. Awesome! I hundred cosine, cosine, hundred <laughs> uh, percent on your on your team for that. Hey, I mean, thank you so much. You rule, and uh, I can't wait to like have dinner with you or something when we are in the same city at the same time. How's that sound? I'm super excited for that too. All right. Thank you so much for having me yep, today. You bet. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nuts. Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus! 
I mean, Jazos, <laughs> ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here 